It is a Friday in December. I've now been dressed as Santa for five hours. The heating in our house is on full blast, and the costume was itchy when I put it on all those hours ago. Now I feel as if I'm covered in ants. I need to take the beard off. I say, "No," says Joel, my son. "I'm getting a rash." I say, "Please stay with me, Santa," says Joel. The original plan had been to creep up behind Joel dressed as Santa. I'd say, "Ho, ho, ho!" We'd have a laugh about it. Then I'd take the costume off and we'd go back to normal. But it didn't work out that way. Although Joel instantly knew it was me, he was so thrilled to have his own personal Santa that he didn't want it to end. Three hours ago, he whispered, "Will you stay with me forever, Santa?" I replied, "Yes, I will, forever and ever and ever." I think I may be allergic to whatever fabric they make the beard out of. I say now, "Don't go, Santa!" wails Joel. "Don't leave me!" I think I'm getting hives. I say I'm feeling claustrophobic. No, Santa, no, says Joel. I need air. I gasp. I need air. I am having a panic attack dressed as Santa. Prepare yourself because I'm going to take the beard off. Now, I say. I do. Joel runs from the room in tears. I go upstairs to my office for a cigarette. Miranda Sawyer is a journalist. She says someone once told her something troubling about all relationships. Somebody once said to me that in a relationship, there's a kind of flower and a gardener, <laughs> and I really hated that idea actually, because my idea of relationship is that it's a push me pull you thing. So sometimes you're the flower and sometimes you're the gardener, and I don't like that kind of those established roles. I'm the gardener. You're the gardener. I'm the gardener. You know, I'm I'm not just any old gardener. <laughs> you the magic gardener. Well, which which is the which is the Sackville West with the really ostentatious garden? Oh, I don't know. It, I think it's Vita Sackville West. Well, I'm her. Are you? Are you yeah, her? Yeah, I, I, I. You know. I'd like to say to listeners that you just you just expanded your hands out like this. I'm her. This <laughs> no, is me. You're like to, the god of gardens. I was trying to do the shape of topiary. <laughs> that's a very nice shape you're you're making. That's lovely. Yeah, yeah. very good. I'm a topiarist. But do you enjoy it? Well, it's 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 there's a lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah, it must be. And, it, and you know, I I I find that quite often it backfires. We'll hear more from Miranda later. Today, I am going to be enchanted rather than be an enchanter. It'll make a nice break. I'm in St Mary in Cornwall, about、uh, half a mile from Ed Prin's back garden. Ed doesn't really like talking to journalists because、uh, ITV approached him a couple of years ago and said they wanted to make a program about his garden, and obviously was excited. And he invited ITV in, and then the program appeared, and it was called Britain's Worst Gardens. And Ed Prin's garden was was the first half, and the second half was somebody had a. I think a nuclear dump in in his back garden, but Ed's garden doesn't sound to me like the worst garden in Britain. It's it's got a mini Stonehenge in it that he's built since the 1980s, and people come from far and wide to be enchanted by Ed's back garden. And Ed will put spells on them and good spells, and he'll provide enchantment for them. Ed began building his Stonehenge 
shortly after he was uh, blinded by a piece of steel in a quarry where he worked. He's Cornwall's chief druid. May I say this? This is a mystic place. And all these sites, like Stonehenge, over at Lourdes, these sites have got something a little bit special. Magic do happen here. Well, I was wondering, Ed, I mean, would you be willing to take us on a, on a tour of the stones? Yes, I'll put on my coat in a minute. Thank you. It was an amazing sight, a giant stone circle surrounding a rather small bungalow near Padstow. Ed says someone once won £800,000 on the lottery because she did her numbers up against a stone. He says he'd be able to bestow magic on me and my producer, Simon Jacobs, but he won't because we're city people and he doesn't know us very well. I'm not going to today, but I could make you two feel as if you've had a couple or three whiskies. If I really worked on you, you two wouldn't know if it's New York or New Year. You'd be gone. We've had about five miracles. We have had countless hundreds of people that have had mystic experience. And if I'm lying to you, so help me God, I hope I die with cancer. Ed says he's named the stones after all the important women in his life. Me great Andy Hilda, because she's born of seven sisters. Monica, Marjorie after mother, the next one was called The Secret Lady. You may say, oh, why is The Secret Lady? What's all the secrets about? When I was slung out on the scrap heap, mad no job, partially sighted, I met this lovely lady. She was a lady. I know a lot of ladies listen to Radio 4. This one was just like that, posh talker and everything. And we did things we shouldn't do. I said, I haven't got no money for flowers or a box of chocolates. But I said, I'm going to build a stone circle and I'm going to call it after you. And she said, Ed, whatever you do, don't never ever mention my name. She said, I don't want nobody to know nothing about our little day out. So I said, fair enough, I'll call it the secret lady. So there's the secret lady, Jackie. <laughs> Marion, the bluebell dancer. You must probably say, how on earth? You're just a country lad. How did you get hold of a bluebell dancer from up in London? It was easy. They lost this diamond ring on the beach and the lifeguard said, there's only one guy who will ever find it. He's a mystic. Of course, they had to come to me. And that's why the romance broke. We went together for nine years. Did you find the ring? No. I didn't, but I found the Blue Will Dancer. After a while, Ed said that he would, after all, provide enchantment for us, and the magic that ensued will be featured later in the programme. My son is thinking about a boy who is apparently something of a class bully. In bed, he suddenly sits up and says, I'm going to have a horrible life. No, you're not, I say. You're going to have a fantastic life. Do you know why? Because you're clever and funny. Clever, funny people have fantastic lives. My wife listens unnoticed by me from the doorway. In fact, I add, thrilled that I'm doing so well, do you know which people have horrible lives after leaving school? Bullies. Bullies leave school and have horrible lives, whereas special people like you have blessed magical lives where nothing bad happens at all. Really? asks my son. Yes, I say. Only bad things happen to bullies, and only good things happen to people like you. 
Those were the worst words of wisdom I've heard in my life, shouts my wife Elaine furiously later. What? I say. First, she says, he won't automatically have a fantastic life. In fact, he'll probably have a worse life now because of the unrealistic expectations you've just instilled in him. Oh God, I say horrified, he'll forget I said it, won't he? And bullies don't automatically have terrible lives, adds Elaine. What you just told Joel was warped and disturbing. You're teaching him schadenfreude. Before my son was born, I had a mental picture of what fatherhood might be like. We were in a car together, driving down a motorway. We turned to each other and smiled. That was it. I notice now that this mental picture lacked dialogue. I had no idea what we might actually say to each other. In this mental picture, neither one of us said or did anything that might screw the other one up. The concept of enchantment is something that's very dear to me because it's something I, I like to look for in everyday life. This is Jeremy Dyson, writer of the TV series The League of Gentlemen. The very early memory that sticks out strongly that shaped me was a family holiday to Blackpool, which is, in itself, is unusual. I look back, look at my family now, and think, why would we go into Blackpool? You know, my mum was a... Please, God, she's not listening. I won't tell her it's on. You know, I was quite a bit snobby when we were kids, and, and certain things were deemed common. For example, I wasn't allowed kaplunk, because it was a common game. Really? And uh, Yeah, and, and, you know, snobby's a bit unfair, maybe, but aspirational. Mm. But anyway, somehow we ended up in a boarding house in St Anne's, Mrs Wilson's. Well, there's your answer, live in St Anne's. Posh. Is posh, yeah. yeah. You know, I went to live in St Anne's once, yeah. and I stayed in a hotel, and the phone kept ringing, and I picked it up and there was no one there. <laughs> so eventually I phoned the reception, and I said, the phone keeps ringing. And the manager came storming up to my room and said, you know those, the, the ringing sound? It's in your head. It's just in your head. <laughs> I see. <laughs> so well, they checked out and threw the key into the sea. <laughs> anyway, continue. No, no, well, Mrs. Wilson's wasn't a hotel, that's the point. You know, I mean, we'd gone to hotels, I think, at that point in our life. But this was a proper B&B. &B, and there was a pull-down bed, which I loved. And, of course, a child has no concept of social advancement or order. And the whole thing was just wonderful to me. And we were taken to the North Pier, I was deliberately taken. They knew where they were taking me, and I didn't know where I was going. And it was a joke shop. I went inside, and then I was enchanted. I was entranced the minute I got in there. And the two things I remember vividly, they're on the counter, that are just were the most wonderful things I'd ever seen. One was one of those tin coffins that you put a 2 pin and a little green hand comes up and takes the... But I'd never seen any... And now I think they're made of plastic. You know, they, they seem quite cheap, but this was beautiful. It was made of metal and... I mean, it was the most magical thing. And then the other one was a little, like a model of a wooden shed or outhouse. And the man behind the counter said, open it up. And I opened it up. And inside there was a man standing at a toilet having a wee. And he turned round and weed on you when you opened it. And, you know, this was perhaps probably one of my most formative experiences of my childhood. Because that has now shaped the man in, the, in the Jesuit fashion. <laughs> is this the local shop for local people? Well, I mean, it's all fed into... I mean, definitely, there was something that happened in that shop. Because it wasn't just a shop, you know, it was a world of wonder. And I saw wonder in all these things. And also, because as well as jokes, they sold magic tricks. And I was bought a magic trick. I think it was a magic trick I came away with. I wasn't allowed the weeing man. If I wasn't allowed Kaplunk, I wouldn't have been allowed that. Maybe there was something vaguely educational in the notion of conjuring 
And that was it. Then I was hooked on to conjuring and the world of conjuring, which I still am now, to the extent I'm about to spend £700 on a cabinet to put all my magic tricks in. Oh, really? Yes, with my wife's permission. Wow. But it is strange how such a simple thing can have such an impact on your life that ripples right through, doubtless, to the end. Yeah. And then building a career on it, building what you do comes out of such a moment. And you trace it all back to that moment. Well, no, because obviously there was something pre-existing that, but there was something that happened then that crystallised it, that made it real, that such a place could exist with such things in it. I'm back at Arch Druid, Ed Prynne's stone circle near Padstow. Ed had decided before we arrived that, as Londoners, my producer Simon Jacobs and I didn't deserve to experience the ancient magic of the countryside. But then he changed his mind and handed me a willow dousing stick. Wobble your stick, make it alive, that's better. Concentrate heavy. Don't listen to me and Jeff. Wow, John, you've done this before. That hit me in the chest. Have you done it before? No, no, never. Am Am I a natural? You're a natural. You're one of these guys that got it. John is really a mistake because he started like he's just like if he've had two or three drops of whiskey because he started to rock around on his feet. This is the time you've got to watch you don't give up mystic mania because he's really hooked on it. And then I handed the dousing stick to my producer, Simon Jacobs. So we'll just see what he's made of. We'll give it. Listen, if it doesn't work for Simon, don't pity him. No. He's, he's just an oily rag. Oh, God. <laughs> he's just the hell. We'll put a shine on him. <laughs> right, Simon, it's your turn. Okay. It, he can't hold look. it, it's pulling back on him. Got well, it? that worked. Back it goes. You, you just pulled that back, didn't you? You did, you pulled it back with you. Not, not with the mystical side of you, but just with the kind of with your arms. Pull Let's tight on again. the little fingers. We'll okay. see what happens when you've got right, your eyes. Right, close your eyes this time. Did it, anything happen for No, me? nothing happened that time. Nothing happened. It did go back. Right, Went back a little bit. Come on the water track. Keep going, you're nearly there. You're nearly there. He's on to this one now, which will be energy anyhow. Nearly there. Right, well... He just walked into a stone. <laughs> well, I had my eyes closed. <laughs> I come down here. <laughs> Not really, no, I'm fine. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to pass you. You are druids now. Mm. I thought you said you only passed people for whom it worked. He is on a lower degree. Okay. Only pass people that it, it did work for him. I pass. Nominate. I don't pass anybody that can handle it at all. Simon, keep your hands in there. Good boy, looking good, Simon. Looking brilliant. Yeah, he's got it. See, can hang on to that. Man. Oh yeah, that See worked. It? How did that feel, Simon? It felt kind of magical. Really? The first time I did it, I did fake it because I didn't want to look bad in front of you. But now, <laughs> I really could feel it kind of move. <laughs> Unless, of course, I've kind of fooled myself and I was actually moving it. But it felt magical. So you had faked it this time? The first time I faked I it, so. yeah. They do. They yeah. do with me. Yeah. They, I can tell generally, I didn't. You did fool me, Simon. I got the sense that Simon only said it was magical because this programme is called Magical Moments and he wanted to shoehorn the title into his post-dousing interview. 
But he needn't have bothered, because something magical clearly was happening. The magical thing was that I was an effortlessly brilliant mystic, whereas Simon was not. This program began with the suggestion that in every relationship there's a gardener and a flower, and I wonder which is more exhausting. Of course, sometimes the roles are reversed. When the comedian Mark Dolan was a child, he decided to repay some of the enchantment bestowed upon him by being delightful. Well, I'm standing outside my old school and I've got butterflies in my stomach because I feel like I'm in trouble because this is the main entrance to the school. So I'm therefore quite nervous as I'm coming into this incredibly grand atrium, which is just before the big hall. And I've just seen in front of me my former headmaster, Mr Giles Slaughter. Hello. Hello, Mark. It's very good to see you after many years. Well, it's fantastic to see you. So this is my old classroom. It's the legendary Room 23. Probably a magnolia, sort of off-white colour. Not at all out there, is it, Giles? It's not at all out there, and it's rather different from what I remember after well, it, you had your <laughs> chance. In the late 1980s, I was a student in this classroom, and I felt that it needed a lick of paint. And I used my dear friend, Glyn Bainan, as ammunition, with whom to approach my class teacher at the time, who was called Mr Thomas. And we said to Mr Thomas, we'd love to decorate it ourselves over the weekend. Would that be possible? You know, he was very fresh in his ideas, maybe quite bohemian, if you like, very forward-thinking. It seemed like a no-brainer to him. It was a chance for the classroom to be improved, but also for us to express ourselves creatively and to do something for our fellow students. But I think, actually, Mark, your brief was just to paint the lockers. Maybe. I think that was right. It was a Saturday, and I think that we followed our brief in the first part of the day. However, I started noticing that the borders, which are very grand, could do with a lick of paint too. And so we started doing the borders. And then some paint dribbled down onto the main part of the wall. So our solution was to go for a slightly different colour, pistachio green, for the main part of the wall. You had green paint, but you also had some black paint. Ah, you don't remember this? No, perhaps. I don't. I think that the fumes mean that my memory is not as good as it was. Because the radiators, you decided to paint in alternate stripes of green and black. <laughs> Do you not recall this? A sort of mixed strip for Newcastle United and Norwich. It's all coming back to me. You've done your research. I have done my it's, research. You see, it's true. Yes. If you had any doubt, headmasters remember everything. But unfortunately, as the sun went down, we realised that we'd made very little progress with the basic job of painting the lockers and made a lot of progress of painting most of the room pistachio green. We realised we were out of our depth. The main problem was that the painting of the lockers resulted in the paint seeping in between the frame and the edge of the doors. And, of course, that didn't dry, so that it oozed through onto books and onto blazers, because a lot of UCS boys would leave their blazers in their lockers over the weekend. I may say that Mark, so Mr Thomas tells me, thought that they'd done rather a good job. <laughs> There was a sort of irony about the fallout from this. It was so awful that Bursa had no alternative 
but to advance the redecoration and the carpeting of the classroom. So they, in fact, got what they wanted without taking care of the classroom at all. But rather churlishly, they left out the stripes on the radiators. <laughs> it wasn't done with malice. It was done with over-enthusiasm and a great lack of uh, decorating skill, I think, Mark. <laughs> That's a fantastic <laughs> understatement. And wouldn't go away because there were boys walking around with bits of pistachio green paint on the edge of their blazers for months after. I remember having a conversation with you in your office and my head bowed in shame. The notion of pistachio green paint on our beautiful oak doors. And I remember being so in awe of you that I panicked and nearly called you Prime Minister at one point. Don't be so silly. No, I really did. I really did. I was so in awe. Mark Dolan. I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I think I'd provide magical moments for my son in a far more unremitting way than my forefathers ever did. When I was a child, my father spread his well of enchantment around the various clubs to which he belonged. He was a little enchanting at the golf club, a little enchanting at the bridge club, and a little enchanting at home but I concentrate the entirety of my enchantment on Joel. Sometimes I think that this is not good. Here's the writer, Miranda Sawyer. I'd been going out with somebody for about two and a half years. It split up and I was very unhappy. So therefore, I was going out a lot, <laughs> which is, there's two different ways of dealing with unhappiness, isn't there? So, but mine at the time was to go out all the time and there was this bloke who was around and I knew him and I didn't actually like him very much he was a journalist as well so there might have been a bit of rivalry I think he kind of waged a campaign on me <laughs> a campaign of sort of of enchantment it was yeah. quite weird because I would keep bumping into him at gigs and stuff and he would be just absolutely hilarious and really entertaining and would kind of constantly be there but without being kind of creepy so I just thought... It was working. Bloke, it was working. You know, I just thought this bloke is great. And so I started meeting him and going to things like art galleries and stuff. And we'd just have a really good laugh. And then he would whisk me to Hampstead and it would be champagne and little sweets and there would be a tape recorder for music and it would just be fantastic. And then we'd go somewhere else afterwards that he'd arranged and we didn't kind of really get off with each other at all until actually after a while I thought, well, I kind of feel like I ought to. <laughs> He used to write poems. He was constantly writing things to me. He would write little notes that we'd had a great day and then he'd go home and write a really funny kind of letter about it and then send it so that you'd then get it the next day and kind of burst into tears because it made your life sound so brilliant and fantastic and filmic. And because he was a journalist, he'd go away quite a lot and he'd get whichever famous person he was interviewing to write me a little note <laughs> and send it back. Have you still but it got wouldn't... them? I think, so. yeah, I have. I've got a big kind of box with loads of stuff in. One was from Sting. <laughs> It was pretty amazing. I've never really felt quite so adored, I suppose, but equally, and this is where the enchantment bit goes wrong for me, really, is I didn't feel like he was actually adoring me. Mm. I mean, 
you collude in a kind of enchantment, don't you? And there's something amazing about that. But I'm not a very enchanting person when it comes down to it. But actually it wears you down to be constantly ace and beautiful and lovely and it really knackers you out, you know. <laughs> There's a line in the film, Tin Men, where Danny DeVito says he doesn't want to go on a picnic. He says picnics are pre-arranged fun, and that's a lot of pressure to put on someone. This is how Miranda began to see her boyfriend. It was all pre-arranged fun. And then, when they split up, she discovered something worse. And then when we finally finished, uh, discovered that actually he'd had two other women on the side the whole way through. Was, was he doing the same to them? Yes, I think he was. I've enjoyed having you two down here today. But this is what it would be like with anybody, Joe Bloggs, anybody. We still have wonderful, wonderful times. And that's what Druidism is all about, really. It's all about having good time and be happy and fun. Ed Prynne had disappeared into his house for a while, and now he'd returned to the stone circle in his back garden, wearing billowing white and gold robes. Being an arch-Druid, you sometimes you've got to make decisions quick. And I thought it was only fitting to, that I put on my robes because I'm going to do a dance that we have brilliant weather in July and August. So do, I, it's, it's, it's going to be a sun dance. I'm going to do that, but I'd like you lads to join in with me and just feel how it go for a minute. And when we up here, we dance clockwise. And what I want you to do is is look at the tops of the stones. But if you lost it and it got too overpowering for you, go to the center stone and just meditate a bit. I'll take a lead and don't feel shy. Jeff, just give this to any sort of nice little steady drumming. Right, I'm dancing around acid. Now look at the tops of the stones. I gave it my best shot. I threw my head in the air and danced orgiastically, spinning in 360-degree circles, my arms outstretched, as I have seen done in The Wicker Man, while Ed's friend Jeff banged a drum. Ed's robes billowed in the wind. At one point, I danced over orgiastically and accidentally whacked Simon, my producer, in the head. Oops, sorry. Just slapped you in one of my turns. Come to the centre stone now, you Touch the centre stone. Right. You're not really fit, are you? I've had the flu all week. We'll kill that lot. You'll go back a fresh man. Oh, good. And uh, I've danced as much as five or six hours non-stop here. You're right. You've done about three or four minutes. Yeah. And... <laughs> <laughs> When you go back on that aeroplane tonight, you'll be talking about this place. I know you will, because I, you won't stop talking. You'll be talking to your friends. So when you get back home, you say, "Oh God, we've had our first mystic experience, all right, in Cornwall," <laughs> uh, and you'll be happy as anything. Dancing around Ed's stone circle reminded me, and I needed reminding, that providing enchantment can be a very simple thing. And you know what? Ed was right.
John Ronson on Magical Moments was written and presented by John Ronson. The programme was produced by Laura Parfit at Unique, the production company for BBC Radio 4.